This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. I'm Dana Perino. Dan Senor is a former Bush White House foreign policy advisor and author. His latest book is called The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. And Israel's resilience now faces one of the toughest tests in its relatively short history. I recently spoke to Dan about the small country's big history. We discussed Israel's history, its politics, and its culture. And of course, he also weighed in on Hamas's brutal attack on October 7th, as well as the response from Israel, the United States, and protesters around the world. We made some edits for time and thought you might want to hear the whole thing. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the weekly Fox News Rundown podcast. You can also find my podcast, Perino on Politics, every Monday by going to foxnewspodcast.com. Now, here's Dan Senor on the Fox News Rundown Extra. Dan, thanks for being here. There's some breaking news today on a couple of fronts. One is that the White House has said that the Israelis have agreed to these four-hour pauses in the war. What will that get them? The theory is it will get them some hostages back. The numbers are talking about 12 to 15 hostages. It sounds like a majority of them are American hostages or hostages that have dual Israeli-American citizenship. Uh, The risk, of course, for the Israelis is any one of these pauses in military fighting are being requested for by Hamas because they're effective. And any moment Israel takes its kind of foot off the pedal means that Hamas can reorganize. They're in these tunnels. They're trying to get supplies into these tunnels. They're trying to reorganize their fighting strategy. They're trying to reorganize their defensive strategy. They're under a lot of stress. The Israeli warfighting strategy is working. It is effective. Now, all the obvious caveats, these things are effective until they're not. But so far, Mm -hmm. it's exceeding the IDF's expectations. And for those reasons... Hamas wants a pause, so they're willing to offer a few hostages to get a pause. And why is the White House announcing that? I think the White House wants to send a message to everyone in the international community who they're under pressure from, but more importantly, from their left flank in the Democratic Party, from from whom they're under a lot of pressure. And I think showing that, you know, President Biden has been very public that he's locking arms with Israel, as we, we've talked about. He flew to Israel. He attended a war, his war cabinet. He's spoken in very emotional, emotive terms uh, about what happened in Israel on October 7th. And I think this is one of a handful of ways he's trying to send a message to the left in his own party who are very hostile to his position on Israel. Hey, I'm trying to, I'm trying to dial things down. I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring the temperature down. That follows President Obama last weekend suggesting that Biden, maybe he didn't say his name specifically, but basically... He might as well have. He should have, right? Yeah. And, and it sounded like that's what he was meaning. And it kind of put President Biden on an island yeah. on his own. Yeah, I actually, I, I was struck in a very negative way by the comments President Obama uh, made for a variety of reasons. Uh, one... The, the public pressure it was putting on the on the Biden White House, which is just not helpful. Have these conversations behind the scenes. There's pen, plenty of other people in the Democratic Party. There are plenty of critics internationally that are beating up the Biden administration's approach to Israel. He doesn't need to hear it publicly from his predecessor, mm-hmm. A. B, I think the substance of what President Obama said was, was shockingly ill-informed. Now, he's not a dumb man, so I can't believe he's actually ill-informed which makes me wonder if he was making those comments in good faith. 
he basically referred to the occupation as though, yes, the, the atrocities were terrible, but you need to understand the perspective of life for the Palestinians under occupation, except these Palestinians aren't under occupation. These Palestinians are living in a strip of land, a small piece of land that Israel withdrew from 18 years ago. Israel has not been there. Hamas has been there. Hamas staged a violent coup against another Palestinian governing authority in 2007 to take over this territory. Israel has not been un, in, in, under has not been occupying the Gaza Strip, so I'm not sure what President Obama was talking about. And secondly, I look there was a ceasefire on October 6th, right? It ended on October 7th. There was a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. So if you just take a step back and say, you know, he keeps saying it's complex. You need to understand all these storylines. Okay, so let's 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 address that complexity. Israel has been out of the Gaza Strip since 2005. In, on October 7th of 2023, Hamas wages a genocidal invasion on sovereign Israeli territory that is not in dispute. No one is suggesting for a moment that there's a future deal to be done where any of the territory that was invaded by Hamas would wind up in a Palestinian state. Even the most far-left peace process advocates, two-state solution advocates, anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. in Israel, in the Arab world, none of them, in the Palestinian leadership, none of them are suggesting that the areas that were attacked in sovereign Israel are in dispute. So they launched into this territory that was not dispute, uh, not under dispute. And they, I mean, I'm asked all the time, what was the point of what, the, what Hamas did on October 7th? The violence and the barbarism was the point. That was the point. And you know it was the point because that's what they chose to broadcast around the world. They didn't try to hide it. That was the message. So that's quite simple, what happened. You don't need complexity. You don't need nuance. We saw what happened on October 7th. So now you look at it from the Israeli decision-maker standpoint. They have to respond. They have to take out this barbaric, genocidal entity that sits on their southern border. When I say sits on their southern border, I don't mean it's you know thousands of miles away or it's in a battlefield and the yeah. other it's a you can see it yeah it's a, it's a two-hour drive from tel aviv the right. center of the country the biggest population concentration civilian population center in the country is a two-hour drive from that and if right. you're you're right and if you're in steroid and you're in southern israel you're you're literally right there you're like mm-hmm. looking right at it so israel has to take out hamas so israel does not choose for hamas where hamas locates its battlefield, it's terrorism headquarters, right? The, Hamas chooses that under hospitals. They co-locate it with schools. So Israel can do everything it's, it can to encourage civilians to get out of Dodge, to head to southern Gaza, to get out of these areas. But at some point, it has to take out these these terrorists and it has to take out their military capabilities or it's going to have another October 7th and another one after that. It has to do that. It can encourage people to get out, it can provide all the information it, it can, sometimes at the expense of its own military effectiveness, by the way, because it's broadcasting where it's going to be going. And um, and it can try to do a lot from the air before it sent, sends in mm-hmm. the ground troops. But at some point, it has to go in. And so my question for President Obama is, who who's actually responsible for Palestinian civilian casualties? It's Hamas. Hamas Hamas's strategy is to maximize Israeli civilian casualties and actually to use Palestinian civilian casualties mm-hmm. as a warfighting strategy from the, on the PR front. And so, again, President Obama is not a dumb man. So the fact that he could say something that is so ill-informed is and, – and I don't believe he's ill-informed. I actually think – It was intentional. Yeah. And, you know, there's the theory uh, that there's only one president at a time. 
Even President Trump has laid off of President Biden in this and give Biden the space he needs to do that. Let's though talk about your book. Yeah, okay. um, just to set the stage, though, just so people can understand, how do you know so much about Israel? It's a great question. I haven't been asked that. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that. Uh, I was uh, I was born in a very Zionist home. So I was born in upstate New York, uh, lived in Canada for a number of years. Uh, my mother's a Holocaust survivor. She was, a, she was hidden as a child by what we call righteous Gentiles, uh, uh, which are non-Jews in Eastern Europe, in Germany during uh, World War II who hid out Jews, who risked a great with great risk to their own lives, did it. In fact, the person who hid my mother out and her mother out had a close encounter because he was hiding out Jews. It's an extraordinary story. Um, these righteous and where were they? In Kosice, which is a small town in Slovakia. Hmm. Uh, and uh, it's a few hours from Bratislava. And um, she, you hear this term, Jews, in the Jewish community, you hear the term righteous Gentile all the time because those are the people who, who risk their lives. I haven't heard the term in a long time. I mean, if you study Holocaust history, you hear the term all the time. In the last five or six weeks, more and more Jews, given the blowback, this is a little bit of a digression, given the blowback on the the anti-Semitism blowback against Jews that we've seen, more and more Jews are saying to themselves, asking about people they know, friends, work colleagues, people who run their kids' schools, people who run their kids' colleges, would they have hidden me out? If I if we were back in the show, if we were back in the Holocaust, would they have hidden me out? Like they're starting to question, like because they're, they're starting. There's this this sense of like all these people turning their backs uh, on the Jews. So, anyways, I grew up. I, I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm now giving you all my baggage, Dan. No, I'm, I'm like, interested. It's this interesting. Is, this is what I was raised with. That it was mm-hmm. it was a heavy upbringing, uh, meaning I was raised my 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 mother's father, my grandfather was killed at Auschwitz. My mother and her mother escaped before the train to Auschwitz, and that's how they got on the run. But how my, old was she? She was a little girl, six, mm-hmm. you know, five, seven wow. years old. My grandfather was killed at Auschwitz. Campbell and I were there with my mother and our entire family this summer. We went back to her hometown. We went back to her home where the Nazis took mm-hmm. them out of um, in Koshitze. We brought our whole family, family from Israel. There was like 15 of us who traveled. It was, it was quite a moving experience. Um, so that's what I grew up with on her side. My father who had worked in, he was an academic, he had worked a little bit in politics, he worked for the mayor of Utica, New York, where I was born until he lost his election, and he was also very involved with Zionist activism in the U.S. He worked for a guy named Rabbi, he was a, like a, a protege of this guy named Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver, who was a prominent uh, Zionist activist in Cleveland, Ohio, where my dad was from, who was a big champion for the founding of the state of Israel. He's one of these leading Jewish figures who was trying to pressure the Truman administration to recognize uh, Israel. And so my father had worked under him and then my father had worked on a number of Jewish and and pro-Israel causes. So this was like, as I said, it was like in the water in my home. Uh, I have, uh, because it was in the water, so to speak, I have two sisters who ultimately made the decision to move to Israel and make their lives there largely because of his influence uh, and uh, and my mother's. And they um, have raised children there. Each of them have three kids. My my uh, one of my sisters has a daughter who's been called up to reserves. Her husband, Saul Singer, is the co-author of our book, and we were co-authors of Startup Nation too. Uh, he uh, so they have a daughter who's been called up. My other sister has three sons. Two of the three sons have been called up, plus a grandson, 
and plus a niece. Mm-hmm. So it just gives you a sense of how everyone... So you're in it. In it, you're right. You're in it. And um, so when I do my reporting and a- analysis on your show and mm-hmm. others, I'm bringing to it my sort of my analytical lens. But, you know, I also have... I'm talking to real people who are, like, living this. Um, and so I spent... This was I was sort of raised with this. Um, I, sp- I studied for a year in Israel uh, at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem when I was in college. I, I did some work there. I did some research as an intern for uh, the Chicago Tribune's Middle East Bureau. And then I got interested in Israeli startups. I started investing in Israeli entrepreneurs. And so between all those things, family, business, personal interest, upbringing, it means I'm in Israel about every two or three months. And um, I you know, I feel very deeply, very deeply connected. To Quickly, how do you describe it? What what does it mean to be a Zionist activist? Yeah, uh, I, may, I mean, I guess it's to say you're a Zionist means you believe in the the, the idea that the Jews deserve and need to build a state, which basically and is activist may be redundant, but it just means that I'm mm-hmm. involved in it. I'm 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 I've been a I've been a voice for you know, defense of the Jewish state, advocacy for the Jewish state, not in a formal way, but right. just an informal way. I ask only because I feel like there's a lot of terms that have yeah. got yeah. up and that people are now like, wait, what does it mean from the river to the sea? And now everyone's getting a real education. And yeah. you're, you have a podcast called Call Me Back. I listened to it before the war. Uh, I love it. I recommended it to everybody. But now it's become this, this in, I have an insatiable need for more information and, and I can find it there. And I knew for a while that you had this book coming out, The Genius of Israel. And I was looking forward to reading it. It's getting amazing reviews. I just read Brett Stevens in Commentary Magazine. Terrific. You did an interview on Commentary Magazine podcast that I listened to. Um, And I want to ask you all about the book. But before I do, because things, the book and its outreach and what it means, I think really, it, it didn't change the content of the book. But October 7th changes this book. Yeah. And the approach of of promoting it because I just wonder what you were thinking on October 7th. How did you find out that October 7th was going down? Where were you? What was it like? On October 6th, uh, after we do a Friday night dinner, uh, Shabbat dinner, uh, and um, which we write about, I mean, in our book, we have a chapter called Thanksgiving Every Week, which we talk about how Israelis um, celebrate Shabbat every week and how it's a big part of not just the religious religion, but also the civil religion of Israeli life. And it's a very important sort of element of Israel's social glue that keeps the country together, which, which we can talk about. And we, we, we try to do that in our home here, and, and we're very involved with the Jewish community uh, here in New York, uh, many of whom do something similar. Uh, I, you're not supposed to be on electronic devices on Shabbat, depending right. on your level of observance, which I, in, in full disclosure, uh, violate. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, you're my friend, you're not my rabbi. Right. You know, so I can get... Well, on, the, on that morning, on, on October 7th, I'm very good friends, as you are, with Ben Shapiro. Yeah. And I kept thinking, how is Ben going to find out that this yeah. is happening? Yeah. So and I, I, I later learned the story of how he did. But So, um, and that was, a, that was an especially important day because that was, uh, it was a Jewish holiday. It was Simchat mm-hmm. Torah. So a lot of religious Jews who normally would be in services in synagogue for Shabbat, but it's also this added layer of a very important holiday. Um, I, before I went to bed late that night, I just glanced at my phone uh, just before I crashed, which was late on Friday night. And, um, and I saw in all my WhatsApp groups with Israelis, I have a lot of Israeli friends, 
I started seeing chatter on these WhatsApp groups where they're like, because it was seven hours ahead, and they're like, something's going on. You know, still early morning in Israel at that point, right? And they're like, something's going on. And But I, I discounted it at the time because I thought, uh, you know, it's just the usual Israel-Gaza skirmish. Mm-hmm. And, it'll, you know, I just didn't think it was any different than May of 21 or 2000, summer of, of uh, 22 or, I mean, these things pop up and then they pop down. I thought it was a version of that. Although the, in retrospect, the way they were talking, it, it, there was a sense that it was worse than that because um, there was something about a land, it wasn't just rockets being fired. There was something about a land, a border penetration, which just never happened. So I was like a little curious, but figured it was probably more of what we've seen, some some sort of pattern recognition. And then I went to bed and then I got up the next morning and I checked again, and mm. by then all my Israeli friends were like, they were just talking about tens, you know, close, you know, 40, 50, 60, there was 100 people dead. Now, in Israel, a population of, you know, 9.3 million people, 100 people dying in a single attack, let alone 1,400 plus. But at that point, we didn't know those numbers. Mm. But, you know, 100 people, it's, it's a lot of people uh, and uh, as, a, as a proportion of the population. So I knew at that point it was probably real and this was different. And then the other way I knew it was really different is, and I haven't talked about this publicly, my sister, who is uh, eight years older than me, lives in Jerusalem, uh, lives around the corner from my mother. She is, um, she's very, she's a very observant Jew. She's very religious. I mean, not Orthodox, but, Mm -hmm. you know, somewhere close to it. And uh, she is completely shuts off of electronic devices on Shabbat from sundown on Friday nights till sundown on Saturday night. She's completely unreachable. I mean, really unreachable. I mean, obviously if there were a family emergency, she would, but otherwise, and I was thinking about this in my entire, as far as I can remember my relationship with her. Okay. Um, I don't remember ever having a conversation with her on Shabbat or a Jewish holiday, another Jewish holiday. Like never, I cannot think of another time ever. She just, she's very literally and <laughs> figuratively religious about it. And I called her phone, which I would never do. Mm-hmm. I called her cell phone and she answered. And I knew when she answered the phone, mm-hmm. this was serious. Uh, because I just knew, I said, this will be a test. Because if it's something's really going, if it's really bad, she will answer the phone. And she answered and she told me, and we talked a lot about it. It was clearly at that point very serious. She gave me two images. She left with me two images that I've, I've thought a lot about. Uh, one was she was at synagogue that day. And in the middle of the services, the sirens were going off. And she, the, the, everyone had to get out of there. And they, she was at this little Orthodox synagogue in Jerusalem. And they were like debating, well, what do we do? We're in the middle of the service. Like, do we just stop the service? And, and then everyone agreed they needed to stop the service. And on that holiday is um, what's called the Yisker service, which is a, a service for um, during certain Jewish holidays where you where you go. It's like a almost like a collective memorial service for for anyone who's lost a loved one. And so she, they said, okay, we'll wait for the end of the Yisker service, and then we'll all scatter. Otherwise, we'll cut the service short. So they finished the Yisker service, and then someone said, well, before we all scatter, sirens are going off. They're in this little synagogue. Sirens like nationwide are going off. And they say, okay, well, before we all scatter, let's do a prayer for the state of Israel, for the, for the, you know, the health and vitality. So they do the prayer. It's called the, for the Medinat Yisrael. It's a, it's a, it's a prayer in, in the Jewish liturgy. 
And then um, they said, okay, let's go. Wait, wait, before we go, let's just do a prayer for the Israeli soldiers because they're about to go through hell. And so they did that prayer. And my sister said, they finished that prayer. And then they were, it was like everyone scattered. And she said when she was, she ran home because she had to get, because all these homes have bomb shelters in Israel. They had to get to these like bomb shelters. And she was running home. And she said the last image she, she saw before she got home, running home. In Jerusalem on Shabbat, it's, it's, you can't hear a pin drop. I mean, the city really mm-hmm. shuts down. And she saw cars whizzing by, which you never see on Shabbat in Israel. And she saw cars driving by and the people driving the cars had yarmulkes on. So they were religious Jews. Now, again, the image of a religious Jew driving a car on Shabbat, you never see anywhere. She knew they were rushing Mm -hmm. to reserve duty. They were rushing to hospitals. And that all had, when you go back in history, that all had the feel of the 1973 Yom Kippur War when Israel was under siege. One of the things you've said is that Jews feel that they can touch history and shape it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I was wondering about, like even with your sister, is that because you you go back and you visit your mom's hometown, but that was, you know, that was the never again. Right. And so your generation, you and your sister and even your children are thinking, well, we have to keep that memory alive. We have to understand the history, but we're never going to have to do that again. Right. Because never again. Right. But now here we are. Yeah. I, this, this, that, look, as, as a, as an analyst of events in the Middle East and Israel, I sort of consider myself sort of a participant and sort of an analyst. Um, but as an analyst, I've always been able to keep a little bit of distance because I know people in harm's way in Israel whenever there's a conflict or whenever there's a security threat. But I, I'll be honest, like I don't feel vulnerable. I don't actually feel vulnerable in these situations. I heard all these stories from my mother growing up and my mother was always like very suspicious and very like, you know, and not in a bad way. She came by it honestly, like she'd gone through this incredible trauma and, and even what she did after the war when she was on the run. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable story. And uh, I never felt I've, – I've, le- I've led a successful life. I mean, in the West, in the United States, professionally, like – we have all this, you know, Jews have all these rights and, you know, influence. Like what, what could, you know, mm-hmm. this is the first time I have felt vulnerable and it pops up in weird ways. Uh, but I, I just, my kids go to a Jewish day school. I, you know, you see the NYPD cars now since October 7th, sitting in front of the school every morning. Um, you, I just, it's all the conversations with the kids. It's, you know, silly things like, you know, you have a dog, I have dogs. Mm-hmm. I walk the dogs late at night and it's pitch black. And like, I'm not, I don't have no profile. I'm not like some, but I'm out there on this stuff. And like, you know, and so I'm walking around the neighborhood with the dogs late at night. You just start to, you start to wonder. And this you, is the first time in your life you've ever, felt that I've way. ever felt mm-hmm. that way. And there's something Even like after nine eleven. I didn't, I felt, 9-11, I felt the country was under siege. Right. But that's different than, this is different because after 9-11, it was like the country was attacked and I knew the U.S. would respond and the U.S. Yeah. would bolster and its defenses. Yeah. But this is different than like that, what, I, that being targeted as a Jew, like yeah. there was a Jew hunting quality to it now right. that, and, and again, 
this didn't hit me the first few days after. It's 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 more in the last couple of weeks. This sense that um, it's weirdly being tolerated. I feel it for you. It's like normalized. Like the the diner, the coffee shop on the Upper yeah. East Side, yeah. who supports Israel, and then he has staff resign. Yeah, yeah. And DoorDash, you can no longer order from there, or I guess DoorDash is trying to fix that. And then there's all these people that come out like, no, we're going to yeah. frequent your store. Like, I want to be yeah. a customer. And I said, Peter, I want to go. Right. I've had 20 coffees today. I clearly don't need any more. But, like, I want to go. And right. I, I, I feel it. One of the things you also talk about is that what happens in Israel matters. Yeah. Why does it matter here? Why should people here care? Yeah. So, um, so. Let me let me address that and tie it to your to your early question about um, so Mika Goodman is one of these guys we interview in the book who's a big public intellectual has had a lot of influence on my thinking, uh, and he says that Israel is in that chapter called Touching History. He says Israel is a small country with a big story, and I love that line. Small yeah, I, country. I, in fact, I wrote it down yeah, here. <laughs> small country with a big story, and what he says, and we describe the scene when we go on a hike with him where he's getting into all this with us. And it's very dramatic, the part of Israel we're looking at when we're going hiking. So I don't think that was his intention, but but the whole thing became very moving. But he basically said, look, there are plenty of small countries in the world, right? Europe is full of small countries. I grew, grew up effectively in Canada, which was is a smallish country, I guess now medium-sized country. He goes, they're all wonderful countries, more or less. They don't really have big stories. Like what happens there doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. They try to improve the quality, the standard of living, quality of life, which is all very important. But that's basically how those societies are judged. You have you have big countries with big stories. The United States is a big country with a big story. China, love it or hate it, <laughs> is a big country with a big story. But you don't have a lot of countries in the world that are small with big stories. Yeah, like I would think maybe Rwanda would be a small country with a big story, but not the same story. Right. Because your first book is Startup Nation, which mm-hmm. is about the amazing entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. uh, that you have invested in and that has helped you become a yeah. successful person as well. But now you have the genius of Israel. And one of the things, I don't know if you came up with it or, or Mika did, but you, in there you talk about a strong, in America we have a strong government and a weak society. Right. Right. But in Israel, you have a weak government and a strong society. Yeah. And you talk about the cohesiveness that is critical for a healthy society. Yeah. For, and a healthy and thriving country. Yeah. So you are, I'm not going to say, you're not, you don't have dual citizenship, no. I'm assuming, but right. pretty much you are American, yeah. you have all these Israeli ties. So yeah. you can see this from both sides. And I wonder what is the lesson here for us in the United States about how we could be a more cohesive society? with a strong government as well so that we can do what is needed in the world. Yeah. So so if I could there are like two or three things that I hope Americans can take away from this book. And you're zeroing in on one of them. Coming back to Mika Goodman, he tells another story where in 2016 after Trump was elected, he goes to a conference at Harvard. He's an academic you know, so he has all these academic friends and peers of his who work at in other institutions in the United States. He's based in Israel. Goes to a conference. And all these Harvard academics are sitting there talking about the Trump voter. I, I read a study about the Trump voter. I, I, I met a Trump. Let me tell you what this Trump voter said. And he's like, are you talking about your fellow citizens? I mean, I get you disagree with them politically, but you're talking about them as though there's some like lab experiment, like there's some other thing. Do you 
Do you actually interact with the them? deplorables. Right. Do you actually have community? Are you part of the same mm-hmm. community? He found it so unrelatable because in Israel, obviously they have deep political division and we talk a lot about that in the book, but it doesn't come at the expense of, of feeling like a sense of community with your fellow citizens and and no one in Israel more or less feels like other citizens are the other. Mika, so, so let me say, so one of the most important things that, that is that glue that you're zeroing in on is most Israelis serve in some kind of national service. It's the, it's the military. There's some civilian alternatives, but it's, it's mostly the military. And it's two or three years unless they go on for officer training programs or they go into one of the elite units. But it's basically two, three years at formative ages, 18, 19, 20, 21, around there. And all of the, you know, all, all of these people who come out of the military more or less develop some extraordinary skills. And we go through the data in the book about how many, how many people come out of the military at those ages with real command experience, management experience, leadership experience, which is like gold. It's phenomenal for building companies and startups. And okay, mm-hmm. that's part of the value. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. We go through how many at any given time, how many people in their 20s and 30s have actually managed big things. The numbers are, are staggering. But what it also does is it, it's, it's a structure in the society that takes all these people from all walks of life and has them working together in the unit. Uh, so it's, it's in the military unit. So if you see even these images that you and I have both, both been marveling at that have been coming out of this current conflict that are quite inspiring, you see in the hull of a tank you know, five, or an armored uh, vehicle, you know, five or six Israeli soldiers, and you look around, and they're from all walks of life. There's very religious ones, there's radically secular ones with tattoos and ponytails, women, women there's, there's, uh, there's, there's people from, you know, North Africa who, made, who moved to Israel, there's people from the United States who moved, there's people, you know, there's sons of cab drivers and sons of tech billionaires, and they're all in that hull of, the, hull of a tank, mm. and they, and it, and so when you mm-hmm. serve in the army there, you not only do your two or three years, but then you have reserve duty. Many of them have reserve duty into their 40s. So you're with the same people. So you're with these people for a couple weeks a year in your 20s, in your 30s. And you build strong relationships. So Mika says wow. to me, I never could. By the way, half these people I think are crazy politically. I totally disagree with them. I'm with them all the time. We defend the country together. We're mm-hmm. we, so 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 that's very special and 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 to your question and then the third thing that I think I hope people think about we and you alluded to it before what's going on today on college campuses is like so disorienting for not only the outburst of anti-semitism but just the sense that it's not clear to me that many of these elite colleges are making our kids smarter <laughs> or more curious or more thoughtful and if you look at the application process to get into these elite, you, so this is like the, the, the North Star for so many families in America today. If I can just get my kid into this college or that college, what's the process for getting in, into the, uh, one of these elite colleges? The entire admissions process, which so many families build their whole lives around for them or their kids, it's about individual excellence. I need to do great on the, I need to get great grades. I need to get great SATs. I, 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 me, me, me. I need to do this. I need to do that. There's never a we in that. There's never, you're never evaluated on how you are with the group. What kind of teammate are you? Are, are you? Or how are you as a member of a community? In Israel, at every formative stage of a young person's life, all the emphasis is on how you are as part of a team and community. It's not to say individual excellence doesn't matter. It matters. Look at the tech community. Some of these entrepreneurs have become fabulously wealthy, all the power to them. 
but at every stage of their life, and this begins with youth movements and scouting movements, it, it, it includes how they teach kids in classrooms, which is on group based on group learning. The group has to do well. It's not about personalized learning. And then the military, you can't get into the best units in the military. You, you may be a perfect candidate for flying planes in the Air Force with a lot of people want to get into. But if you can't work with a team, you won't get in. So the incentive structure for the whole society is it's not a, enough for me to just crush it on my own. I also have to be able to work with other people. And when that's the incentive structure that's rewarded, it changes the whole way that society exists and the way people live in that society. Fascinating. You are donating the proceeds of this book to a group called Zaka? Zaka. It's a few organizations. Zaka is one, um, which has done some amazing relief work and has also, um, there's a, there's, they're doing a lot of, sadly, there's a lot of work to be done with mm-hmm. these burials uh, and, the, um, and the, helping the families deal with all of it. Um, and so there's a separate pocket for those res- resources for that. And there's United Hatsala, which is, I think the guy who runs it, uh, Ellie Bear has been on your guys' air. Uh, it's, it's this um, volunteer, it's a network of about 7,000 volunteer paramedics on these motorcycles. And they are, it's, it's an amazing system. They were some of the peop- first people on the scene on October 7th. Mm-hmm. They've been doing extraordinary work. Um, the work, and, it, and sadly it's not over, uh, the work of burying people and mourning people in a country of 9.3 million people, when you when you think about it, 1,400 people so far, still a large number, we don't know the precise number, still a large number of Israelis whose bodies uh, either have not been identified or no one's been able to account for, meaning there's no, there's no trace of them having been taken to Gaza mm-hmm. and there's been no through DNA uh, evidence of their body mm-hmm. having been found. Many people and families are going to multiple, have been going to multiple funerals. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's just, mm-hmm. it, it really is um, overwhelming to um, think about. So, and I, I'm sure there'll be other projects that I support, but, uh, and, I, and maybe I should, you know, advertise them, you know, so. I'm just curious because uh, it was an incredible effort to write the book. Yeah. And then the book, and the meaning of the book changes yeah. after the attack. To me, it did. And I think it's wonderful that you wrote it. Um, I think it's a great tribute to your heritage, and um, I don't, I don't want to hear that my friends feel vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, um, but I understand that you do, and I think other people need to hear it too. So thanks for joining us on Thank the Fox you. News Rundown thanks podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown, and now stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.